0: how are you
1: hi yeah thank god very well very well how are you doing serene
0: i love yeah I'm, I'm doing well too i love how you say thank god it's um it's refreshing and another thing that i love that you say is um whenever there's an event happening in the future like i'll say i'll see you soon and you always say god willing mm. it's um I like it because we don't really know what will happen in the future and and almost making promises about the future seems somewhat dishonest and saying god willing i'll see you soon sounds like the most honest way to live a life i guess
1: mm-hmm. yeah well well it gets you around it gets you around the the possibility that you're going to say something false which is a bad thing but also um it it does that without uh while also allowing you to to um slip in and a uh what a reassertion of your intention that it will go that way and also a little prayer so that's that's the that's a bit of a trifecta mm. a
0: reassertion. like if someone
1: yeah like if someone if someone says um you know will it what you know I, are you going to come to the party and you're like i don't know i mean that's true but it also sounds like you're trying to get out of it a bit if you're like god willing and you're like i i would like to but the future is not a place that i have dominion over mm.
0: So, um, you're, uh, to, to kind of introduce you, you're, um, a friend of mine, first of all, and, uh, and an Orthodox Jew, and you have your own podcast, uh, Mm -hmm. Building Jerusalem with Yitzhak Tibble. There's two of them, but yours is the one with Yitzhak Tibble. Yes. And, uh, to me, I, I wanted to get you on because you, you represent something like the next wave of religion to me. And I know that's putting a lot on your shoulders, <laughs> but I I kind of see, I see a lot of people dropping out of religion, which is a real shame. And, and the way you speak of it and interpret it, I think gives value to it, to even an atheist. And um, I'm, I'm very interested by, whenever you bring up religion, it's, it's incredibly fascinating to me. So I thought I would have you on the podcast and, and talk about it.
1: Sure, thanks very much. Yeah. I'm on it. Uh,
0: Oh, thank you. Um but first about your maybe we'll talk about your podcast first. Um can you tell me a little bit about it? Like what what is what was your intention with it and what kind of people did you interview?
1: Oh, um, well the intention going in I guess was was pretty broad. Um I think I think I uh I suffer from a um something that I guess a lot of people would some sort of with a creative uh, spirit of one kind or another suffer from, which is a uh, perennial dearth of output. And I figured that um, I could force myself to meet up with interesting people and have conversations with them. And um, that would be a good thing. And I, th- I think um, often you get some pretty good ideas coming out of conversations. So at least there'd be there'd be some record. Um, uh, and that would that would be that would be a good start. And I think that um, when you have when you have a podcast, you get to have long conversations with people that you want to have long conversations with. You otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. And those that in itself is is extremely edifying.
0: Oh, absolutely. You can. Uh, it's definitely a great place to arrange a meeting with somebody who you have no other uh, reason to, or they may perhaps they have no other reason to talk to you. Is the best. Um, way to say that i mean in the past i interviewed like i used to have this podcast that i actually took down but i interviewed um astronomers and mycologists and psychologists and also all sorts of really fascinating people and um i'm
1: trying to figure out the theme you're um you're making sure that the mushrooms you send into space are mentally healthy
0: oh yeah of course yeah mushrooms that's important the key to life and so you need if you're if you're colonizing other planets they need to have yeah yeah
1: And you if the mushrooms having a bad trip, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think I think we're on the uh, we're in the top top thirtieth percentile, top thirty. Probably in the, the top middle, third middle of civilizations. Health. Yeah, okay. yeah, we have we have our we have our stuff, but you know, could be I a think lot dogs worse.
0: Dogs are first.
1: Oh, oh, oh! If we're, if we're counting, I don't know. I was, I was just thinking sentient species, but if we're counting, if we're counting like animals of Earth. Yeah, dogs are pretty good. Dog, i think i think like um dogs have been dogs are possibly the only creature that's been like rigorously bred to be pro-social over like mm-hmm. thousands of years so yeah big surprise and it works
0: i wish i for, i wish i remember the name my friend's a doctor and there's this disease that um people can get and it's it's a genetic disease and it, it's a disease that makes you um mentally disabled but incredibly happy all the time and one time she said that people suspect that dogs have that that people bred that disease into dogs so Mm. they're not as smart as wolves but uh they're incredibly happy all the time always amazingly happy Mm. to see you which is strange
1: that's really interesting Mm. i feel like especially you know with once you um so something that really really became clear from studying psychology is that um, a lot of the things that we put in as uh, you know called by ontological names are like oh well you know this such and such disorder or what have you it's not like it's a real thing it's just like there's a series of mental traits that tend to cluster together and if you have six of these ten bullet points then you've got it mm. um and so and so just like the idea that uh we've it's the exact same disorder. Yeah, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but the idea that the same cluster of mental traits would function collectively mm. uh, would have been, been independently bred into dogs. I think that's very reasonable. It's entirely well, a, possible.
0: Yeah, it's it's very true. And I think um, maybe upon, I mean, we have this we have this culture of psychology of, of kind of basing all of our um, all of our ideas on the DSM, which uh, is flawed in so many ways but I suppose like when you get a cut you have a cut and you can categorize it as a cut it's it's definitely not um a burn for instance Mm. and and they're very two separate things but with mental illness it's like we can't quite categorize the brain you can't slice it up like like pizza and just say this is this is what this section is like this is bipolar and this is ADHD Mm. um and I think we try to do that I think people well, Adam named the animals like we people like to name things and categorize them and put them in the boxes. And so um, it's easy to get. I think it's also easy to get stuck into a diagnosis if we have one.
1: It's, yeah, also true. Um, I want to I want to see if I can remember this guy. I, I studied um, behavioral science for a little bit with uh, Yitzhak Arani. Yitzhak Arani, um goes by Jinji. At, at Hebrew University and he used to say um and he 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 put me onto this piece by um I think the guy's name was PW Anderson so in the 70s he wrote this p- paper called more is different I might have some of the details on here and basically what he was saying is in principle if all you know is the rules of I think like a certain subset of quantum physics then you can do all of chemistry with that you don't need to know anything else you can just brute force chemistry. But practically speaking, there are insights in chemistry that you only really get from doing chemistry and that you actually can't derive from first principles. You could, you know, prove them backwards. I guess it's like a bit P equals NP. You can sort of demonstrate how it works with the quantum model, but you can't actually figure it out if you start from that baseline. And I think that, you know, that goes up on a whole lot of levels of analysis. And one of the levels is that, yeah, we're, we're really good at um, making these structural models of the brain and saying, well, this is the, the, um, Hippocampus and this is the thalamus. And um and you know, that's fantastic. But then you're like, okay, so um I was talking to my friend the other day, you know, I was, I was trying to illustrate how little we actually get of the, the jump from um from neurology, from neuroscience up to actual psychology. I said, okay, so what what does you know, what takes care of memory? And he's like, oh, well, you know, the hippocampus and the thalamus, and just lists like four of them, five of them, and I'm like, yeah, great. W- which part does what? Non-nursing. like it seems like these things turn on when that thing happens yeah 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 (laughs) it's it's like what we have is the red light and we're trying to figure out microphones from that
0: oh yeah and absolutely i mean the brain's so complicated when people say i i got very interested in neuroscience for a while and it's just enough to realize that nobody really knows what they're talking about and even if they they understand like a very specific specialty about what pathways operate where it's they still know very little. Like, so whenever you hear someone saying, um, dopamine is responsible for, uh, X, you know, for, for uh, goal setting or whatever, it's like, that's absolutely far too simplified. And just saying that kind of indicates how, not how little, you know, I mean, that sounds, um, quite grandiose, but it's like, I mean, there are, I think five different types of dopamine and they're in two categories and they operate a with in tandem with like dozens or hundreds of other neurotransmitters that are all operating and kind of keeping balances and then there are the glial cells that kind of feed them and and make sure the the environment is correct and it's it's just so overly complicated that we have very little idea of how it works still
1: mm. Mm. apparently the glial cells are more responsible for stuff than we previously thought too that's mm. just coming out the glia they're not just like glorified wiring like um you know, wire cleaners or cooling down systems are, they're they're actually involved. I mean look I um yeah it's 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 uh it's like it's like you are on a you're on you're on like a forum chatting about like the difference between you know excel and Google Google documents like spreadsheet programs. I like, yeah really it's about electricity like electricity is what makes these programs work. Mm. Mm. I don't
0: understand quite what you mean by that oh i I guess
1: like you know the chemical involved you don't know the like you're not even talking about the process the process is an entirely different thing yeah yeah
0: oh that makes sense yeah um but i suppose we need simplicity to live to to kind of understand life um sure sure
1: we do need simplicity to live but um we've got uh, you know it's it's you don't you don't want to pretend that you're what simplified functional map is in fact the territory
0: yeah that's all we get confused there um mm. which actually kind of brings me to religion a little bit because
1: uh okay you brought it up this time not me
0: yeah well <laughs> that's okay i brought i brought you on to mostly talk about it i'm sure we'll talk about other yeah. things too but um you're very entertaining no matter what but um in terms of, I mean, there's there's this thing that I that that is bothering me. Of okay, okay. So to give a brief introduction of me, I um, I'm planning on converting to Judaism at some point to modern Orthodox Judaism, and so I'm kind of in this in this sort of space where I'm looking at it fairly critically and also looking at the the positive points and then kind of forming my own view because I'm planning on it. But it's I think. One should go into something really understanding it as as well as one can. Although um, I don't know if anyone really understands Judaism, but uh, I see these. I'm I'm kind of making these decisions by my myself, like um, trying not to interpret the map as the territory, as they say. Like, so for instance, every time I decide not to do something that Judaism commands. Um, there's a saying of, "Don't take down a fence until you know what it's hiding, or until mm. you know what it's keeping back." And so it's like um, every time I decide to wear clothing that goes past my elbows, um, you know, that that is revealing or something, like I could I could say, "Well, that's an old time principle, and things used to be different back then." But do I really know what the effects of that are? Mm -hmm. i suppose i see religion as as kind of a from kind of an evolutionary lens in a lot of ways is in the religions that succeeded were the ones that gave people rules to live by and the people who had good rules to live by survived and thrived and one of the reasons why i really like judaism is that it it the culture is excellent i mean the people seem to be very well educated and very. Uh, they have great communities,
1: mm. um,
0: and so the principles must themselves be good, and so yeah, it's it's a lot to think about.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it's 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 um, something that that comes up from from what I mean you you know you're covering a lot of ground there, but something that springs to mind is um one measure of, of how good a community is is um what does it do with its uh, extra resources. Uh, and I think the, you know, the, the, you know we, we, it's sort of uh, a bit trite to, to say that we're living in a consumerist society. Okay, we're consuming. What does that mean? It means you want to try and make the maximum um, surplus income and then spend it on showy things, maybe. Uh, well, that's part of what it means, at least. But but um, the idea that like, it is that like different different times and places and cultures, you have different things that qualify as showy things um so my friend salvatore recently uh came back from it has been a couple of years now came back from his sabbatical in rome and he said that there was this um period in time in rome where if a rich guy wanted to like do something fancy he'd build the church in rome that was the thing to do and they wouldn't like like build churches in madrid or valencia or whatever they built it in rome and rome had way too many churches already and that's just what they did and so now if you go to Rome it's just incredible like you can you could turn down a random side street and find a, a, a church that no one um you know that no one knows anything about that has no one in it that's just completely unrocked by Roman standards but would be in like the top three churches hmm. on a different continent it's wow. just just mind-boggling
0: um, so that's smart.
1: right so that's like you know that's that's how that's that's what happens right so like if you say like step one is the Ferrari right and then step two is like building churches in Rome what's step three what's step four what 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 ways of um people spending their extra resources to indicate I don't know mate, fitness or what have you um could be better than that I mean one thing I really really like is um this idea that uh on especially on high holidays um the, the 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 big honors of the um of the services will be auctioned off so it's like the person who gets to open the ark before the Torah on like Yom Kippur for a certain prayer like that honor will be auctioned people will bid on it someone will win the bid um and then give like whatever whatever's bid he'll give that as a donation to the synagogue for the running of the synagogue and it's you know altruistic um uh purposes and then as well as that the um He'll, he'll usually then give the honor to someone else as a way of honoring that person so he won't even open the thing uh, and i i think that's such, just such a stunningly good um way to process extra resources mm. yeah
0: oh yeah absolutely i think um i love seeing that too that's a good point of uh taking things like the need to um uh, to advertise uh, mate selectability, I don't know what that is. To, to I don't know exactly to say it. To um, show mm-hmm. off how how great of a man you are, and then channel it towards a very wholesome avenue. I mean that's excellent. I think um, another one of my favorite examples of that is Boy on Slot. He has a, a the ocean cleanup project, and they 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 clean up. I don't know if you know about this, but they they have these giant barges, and um, plastic floats into them, and they just clean up the ocean. It's, it's immaculate. It's incredible. And, um, he makes these glasses out of the recycled plastic. And I think they cost like $300 and it's amazing because people want to show off how environmental they are. And so he gives them this opportunity to donate $300 to this amazing cause. And then they mm. get to wear these glasses that just say, I, I'm an environmentalist. That's, um, mm. a high status move in their community. And it's, you know, it's somewhat different. It's, a uh, I guess pledging money towards God. I don't want to compare it towards. You well, know, but, you know,
1: it's, yeah. it's kind of. I mean, the where, the where the rubber hits the road is is in the charitable programs in the end anyway. Like, uh, you know, what is it? There's there's this line at the end of um, Tana de Baelias or something like, um, "The Holy One, blessed be He." He says, uh, "What is it I lack that I need of you? And what then do I ask of you? Only that you be uh, be kind to one another and revere one another and love one another." like that's 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 where the rubber hits the road so i mean yeah like doing right by other people is is may well be the holiest thing that can be done i I mean that in like not just in like the the you know the commonplace saying of it but like doctrinally that seems to be the case
0: oh absolutely i um i had this conversation with someone not too long ago where he said he talked about sorry that he talked about serving god he talked about serving God through giving to charity and, um, from the Jewish point of view, God is everything and everyone. And so if God is in the beggar, then by serving the beggar, you are literally serving God, but also Mm -hmm. serving, serving God's will as well. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. hmm. Yeah. I, uh, there was an email going around recently ahead of Halloween about, um, uh, i think it was Robert ingram sent it out about like how how um halloween is like a very non-jewish festival and he was saying oh it's, i think it's more it's more un-jewish than christmas and, he, and everyone's like and when i say these people are like what do you mean nothing could be more un-jewish than christmas because christmas is literally another religion thing he's like oh, yeah Jesus well was a Jew. i don't
0: know right there you go he doesn't, <laughs> go, that <angle>. he doesn't <laughs> go that angle he doesn't go that
1: angle he, he, his angle is it's two parts one is Well, in the actual, the actual festival itself is like a pagan holiday. Sure, sure. Like everything has pagan roots. Um, But then the second part of it is um, at least Christmas has a spirit of giving to it. Halloween, the spirit is you show up at people's houses and you like essentially blackmail them into giving you candy. Yeah. He's like, no, that's not, that's not what we do. And, um, you know, we were talking about this. Give me a moment here. Mm. We we were actually talking about this the other day at, at, at the Halloween party. Yep. About liminality and how like cultures independently, um, you know, derive these festivals of people who dress up and everything's reversed. Um, and so the 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 Jewish one is Purim, right? And the slogan is Vinaḥahu, and and it is flipped over, and that's like right. the sort of motif of the um of the uh, the the story of Esther together but also it's like the festival itself and the masks and the dressing up and the subversion of um normal power structures and whatever and and Robbie Ingram points out that well what what we do on our liminal dress-up day um is is we go around and give food to our friends and give gifts to the poor Mm. like those are two of like the four mandatory mitzvahs of the day Mm. along with feasting and hearing the Megillah.
0: And getting so um it's it's enacted out as getting so drunk that you can't tell your left hand is from your right but there's also a different way of interpreting it i believe
1: yeah the getting so drunk that you can't tell the difference between blessed is mordechai and cursed is haman
0: can you tell people what Purim is because uh there might be some non-jews listening and uh, before i before i was introduced to judaism i knew absolutely nothing about it i knew hanukkah and mm. that's about all. So I, I don't think many people know what Purim
1: is. Yeah. So Hanukkah gets a um, gets a, a higher profile because of its um presence in late December. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but but um, yeah, but Purim is Purim is a roughly an equivalent festival. Uh, Purim and Hanukkah are, are like sort of the the two um, big rabbinic festivals. So they they uh, they're festivals based on things that happened like after the Bible was already written and and, and um, codified and that that's after that so uh, uh the point the, the point story is the story of the the central story is that there was a um uh, a, a king in a in a, in persia this was after the after the um the the jews had been expelled from israel by the babylonians and then um then the, the persians had defeated the babylonians so the persians sort of inherited the jews as part of their empire but hadn't actually conquered them so there's this there's this interesting sort of tension of um of uh the persians being seen as at once imperial occupiers but also saviors and that that's that's you know that's a really interesting line to to pursue um a uh, little little uh little you know pop quiz there is is as far as i know there's only one person who's actually referred to as mashiach in the um in the in tanakh and i'll leave it i'll leave it to you to try and um figure out who that is but anyway the point is that um the the uh, Persians um, the Persians give a uh, they, the Persian king throws a feast celebrating his big empire. Um, he he commands his his uh, wife to come and dance for for the people before or like to to display with her regal crown or something. She refuses, and this is like a crisis of the government. Um, and he ends up sending her away and, and running a beauty pageant, essentially, to find his new queen. Um, and there's this, there's this one girl, Esther, who's, um, who's, uh, you know, a, a Jewish girl, the niece, I, niece or cousin or something, of, of, of Mordechai, who's like the um, the sort of leading leading figure of the time. And she ends up uh, going getting drawn into this process uh, unwillingly, but. She, um, she's selected by the king and becomes the queen, and she's told, like, just hide the fact that you're Jewish, don't tell anyone, um, and she, she hides, it and hides it and hides it and hides it and eventually, like, there's this, you know, many, many details, but there's a, there's a massive crisis of, um, of near genocide essentially. The Jews are about to be wiped out, and at, at this crucial climactic moment, she reveals that she's Jewish, and that this, this genocidal effort is aimed against her and her people, and then the king's furious and, you know, has his the, the conspirators who previously enjoyed his favor um destroyed wiped right. out and so we're in this in this in this brilliant reversal this um the concealment becomes revealed and 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 saves everyone um and so it, the, that that the idea and and the um the, the chief conspirator is is um hanged on a gallows that he himself prepared for for mordecai the jew for the, hmm. the the head of the jews and so that that reversal is sort of the the um culminating reversal in, in a series of, of um, flips throughout the story and and so the theme is the theme of the day is is um the reversal and and concealment right in the same way that the queen hid her hid her jewishness and her, her name esther is related to nistar concealment hmm. um, and the name of god doesn't appear in the text so he's also concealed yeah it's very interesting there's only one openly religious thing is, that, that i can see in the entire text only one what is it um, it's that before at the moment where Mordecai tells Esther you've got to go and intercede with the queen, she says, Um, oh, I uh, you know, I can't. The rule is that if anyone goes before the king, even his queen, without being summoned, um, that person is is liable for death. And you essentially need a royal pardon to to make it out of that situation. And I'm not guaranteed a one, but I'll tell you what, the king hasn't served for me in a while. So if we just you know, lay low for a few days. Will probably send for me, and then I can, you know, do the bit and try the interceding. and And Mordechai says something like, um, "Yeah, well, you know, it's um, this is this is on you. At the moment, you've got to do it now. Um, and if uh, if you hide, then you and your then um then God will surely send you know some other rescuer. But you and your father's house will vanish. Something okay. like that. Yeah. Um, and so so she says, "Fine, I'll do it." But make everyone um, get a, get everyone all the Jews to fast for three days first. I'm gonna fast. My maids are gonna fast. Get all the Jews to fast. So everyone fasts for three days before she goes to the king. Um, and that's that's as far as I can tell. It's the only openly religious thing that happens in the whole text.
0: Mm. Mm. Why would they Why would they fast?
1: Well, the fasting is um, is uh, a traditional uh, method for. Um, Invoking divine favor, mm.
0: Mm.
1: Mm.
0: makes sense. Yeah. And then, you... uh, so, and so now on Purim, uh, children dress up in the in the daytime, and mm-hmm.
1: uh,
0: part of the Torah is re- read out. And then, um, I mean, you can please tell the rest. Tell us what happens in a traditional Purim festival.
1: Yeah. Well, I I mean, a minor correction there. It's not part of the Torah. It is part of the Tanakh. It's the, the story of Esther, one of the later writers. Yeah. yeah,
0: it's the five books, that's right, sorry.
1: Correct. So, but it is part of the Tanakh, it's read out, the book of Esther in the night and the day, and people feast, uh, and as you say, the kids dress up, as well as some of the more courageous and playful of the adults. And, um, and we give gifts to each other. We roll around in each other's houses and give gifts, which, like everything, have, have a set of rules attached to them. The main rule being that it has to be two separate food items. different food items you can't just give someone a can of coke it has to be a can of coke plus an apple something like that two different things um and we give uh donations to the poor and there's that's there's the four commandments of the day but it also occupies this this place of the um of the liminal transitional day the 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 day that subverts the normal pattern of things
0: and people get really really drunk that night really
1: drunk yeah (laughs)
0: And I, I wonder, I wonder how how that worked. I wonder w- w- maybe if I, I seem to kind of see religion from a we talked about this before, but kind of from a three-dimensional point of view. And and instead of living in it, um, as I hope to do in the future, I I kind of see it for perhaps it's more like it's evolutionary reasons or why why it ends up being good. What what is the the positive what positivity can we derive from this act and so I I wonder if perhaps getting really drunk with your community is a way to uh form bonds with other people or um but as you said it's kind of it's also kind of flipping the tables it's it's kind of acting a fool for the night um Mm. in a way that many cultures do
1: yeah yeah uh so look drinking and and bonding through drink is is a broader thing, um, like, uh, you know, we obviously, we we, we sanctify wine traditionally on, on Saturday night and uh, Friday night and Saturday daytime, um, and, and, you know, at the festivals, like, the, the, this wine is a, is a mainstay, not to it's this a
0: extent. It's a glass,
1: it's, a, it's right. a small amount of wine. That's true, that's true, um, but also, um, it, it seems, okay, so You're right. So there's, there's two more like things that I I suppose can be said on that, on that. One is that, um, at least from the Talmud, it's very clear that there was a lot of wine being drunk. Mm. Um, I think that might be because wine keeps, I think it's the same reason that sailors traditionally drink rum. Um, it's that wine keeps and doesn't get infested, but water gets infested. Mm. Um, and so when you're not, when you don't have, you know, storage methods, wine is safer than water. Um, yeah, there's somewhere I'm trying to remember I think in Masech to Shabbos somewhere it says something like um, uh, you know it's comparing it's trying to figure out if you bless Shabbos first or the, the wine first you know do you make the, the Hegefen blessing or the blessing over you? Shabbos first and one of the arguments there is well you know Shabbos is rare but drinking is common and so yeah. you know that gives you some sense of how often these people were Ingesting wine, and then the other the other side of that coin. So that's that's the Talmudic side, and then you know the modern Hasidic side. Of course, is that um, in within Hasidic communities, the, the idea of the uh, the, the coming together and, and sharing stories and speaking deeply from the soul and to the soul, and, and having quite a bit of alcohol. Um, that's part of that of that of the fraternity um, fraternity activities. Let's say, mm-hmm. like it's it's quite common um, if you go to the right shul. Uh, if you go to the you know the right house of prayer you'll get quite a bit of alcohol excuse me you'll get quite a bit of alcohol there you go quite a bit of alcohol and most weeks um so so it's not just Purim but Purim is the big one I think Purim is the only one where you're like really um commanded to get very very drunk Mm. and you know people would I how commanded you really are but but the central it seems to be that you're commanded to get really drunk and it to me that seems more um that seems more powerful than than mere bonding i think it's really supposed to be a a periodic reset in the mm-hmm. same way that you know shabbos is a periodic reset from labors and sleep is a periodic reset from normal waking consciousness and you know the 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 calendar has you know many levels of analysis um, bigger and smaller, uh, the laws of family purity, NIDA laws, are supposed to be a monthly reset in the same way. Um, So that's, you know, these levels of reset exist at at various levels. And Purim, I think, is the the big destruction and reconstitution of, of, you know, your societal models, but also, like, your model of who you are. It's like, you're wearing a mask today. Have you been wearing a mask all year, maybe? Maybe get really, really drunk and think about it. I don't know, you know maybe these are, these are elements there
0: hmm yeah Judaism has some the laws of family purity I just want to I, I, in case people are listening to this who aren't Jewish it's uh you can't touch your if you're if you're married to someone you can't touch them while the woman is on her period and about a week after is that hmm. correct
1: and
0: yeah that's so probably great for um having babies at the at the proper time. Mm. Um, and then Shabbos is, uh, when I first was introduced to Judaism, I realized, or Shabbat, um, how good of an idea that is. <laughs> I, I had no idea before, but um, it's really kind of the foundation of the Jewish community in, in many ways, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can't work at all, which is lovely. It's really, really nice to not work um, for a whole day and, and be commanded to not work on top yeah. of that
1: um you're not even allowed to feel guilty about that work
0: yeah which is
1: actual relaxation
0: yeah it's it's amazing um because i think i i come from this very american culture in a way of, of just you know we have this modern idea of like hustle culture like you listen to gary b and he's like never stop working <laughs> like yeah work, learn to lucid dream so you can work while you sleep like just crazy stuff and in Jewish culture, it's actually like, oh no, you have to, you have to rest one day a week. It's mandatory. And on top of that, you can't drive, you can't mm-hmm. um, cook, um, many things. You can't write or play music and and watch TV. I mean, there's there's so much there. But I think one of the one of the major parts of it is that you you can't drive to synagogue. And if you go mm-hmm. to synagogue, you have to walk, and that makes it so you live within a few kilometers of your neighbors all of of your family probably of of your whole neighborhood and um the community is is excellent it's amazing to, to kind of it just just the fact that nowadays i live in this area and i i walk down the street and i see so many people that i know like i go to the supermarket i see people that i know and it's it's like i think of beauty and the beast or something like that quaint town where everyone knew each other and that's kind of what Judaism has brought into the modern world in so many ways. Um I I, I think I felt nostalgic <laughs> for something like that until I, for something that I've never had really until I I got here. So it's fantastic.
1: Yeah. I, I'm laughing because I remember some like a great tweet I saw about this recently that was like um uh uh here comes the baker with his bread like always oh, yeah and here comes Bell with a daily mean song about us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man! <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: but it is. It it has that enchanted quality. You know, I I actually I wrote a piece um, uh for, for the uh, university newspaper writing competition a few years ago. Um, specifically pressing that angle, um that that I that I I'd, I'd functionally, despite you know growing up in in um, I guess the the most metropolitan of the cities in. In uh, Australia, sorry, Melbourne. Um, I I did at the same time grow up in like a little village. That mm. was that was that's very it's very visceral. It's very concrete.
0: Mm. Are you still at university? No. No. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Otherwise, I'd, I'd still be entering those competitions. I think, and I think I'd still be writing for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. If you get a chance, whoever's listening to this, if you're at university and your university has a newspaper, do yourself a favor. Go become a writer for your university newspaper. And then go ask people to um, to give you interviews and to give you free tickets to things.
0: There ah, you go. okay, yeah. free tickets. I like,
1: it. Mm-hmm. yeah, mm. I got I got like best seats in the house, free tickets to the opera house to see I think Verdi's Rigoletto. Wow. Just it, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy what people will throw at student writers for student newspapers. You Just got to message the publicity person and say, I write for the newspaper. Can I have free tickets to the city? open stores
0: okay yeah maybe i'll start doing podcasts that require free tickets
1: yeah i i don't know if you'd be as lucky with that you don't have an institution backing you
0: mm.
1: yeah okay mm. the thing as well is that there's this sort of like um there's this sort of uh, chain of, of of um of institutional of institutional weight there so it's like the university of sydney so is this big prestigious thing and then like within that you have the, um, the university newspaper which isn't really run by the newspaper it's run by like sort of the union so you've got like university and you've got the union and the union has this newspaper and the university has, and the newspaper has its team and there's someone on there who can, who can say yeah one of the editors which would be like yeah or a team of the editors would be like yeah yeah okay you can write for us and then you're sort of this this whole domino goes back out so the key thing that the person reads when you send the email is the university of sydney like, well wow, university of sydney but you know, that's there's there's so many points of leverage up and down it that all you really need to do is eat, you know be vaguely good with a pen, mm. um, and just willing to put out a bit of content.
0: Wow! And the tip of that pyramid is just some students getting drunk on the weekends and procrastinating on a on a, on a piece that they have to write tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Yeah,
1: I think a lot of a lot of um, I think the the, the tips of a lot of pyramids are like that. I mean, I I recently uh, I saw Hamilton this week for the first time on it was so Disney good. Plus. I loved it. Not live. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping to go live, but I, I, was, I was told that you've got to see it with subtitles first. You know the lyrics, otherwise there'll be too much going on. You won't okay. follow. Um, did you see it in, in the theater?
0: I saw it live right before uh, we got locked down. It was... Uh, oh,
1: well done. Yeah. Was that your first time seeing it? Yeah. Okay. Did, w- did you find it tricky to follow the lyrics?
0: No. Uh,
1: no. They must have good um, enunciation at this production here, then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was it was excellent it made me more of a patriot i wanted to read the constitution i still do <laughs> <laughs> <So now. laughs> understanding oh. the founding fathers better yeah
1: yeah have you have you seen um this is a bit more obscure have you seen 1776 the musical no so that's that's the sort of that's this done 30 40 years ago and it's mm. a lot more i mean it has its comedic aspects, but it's in some sense a more serious piece but i was so impressed with how well that um that musical did, um, you know, turned the proceedings of um, of the uh, Second Continental Congress into, you know, an entertaining musical romp. Um, and then, but but at the same time, that tells the story of sort of the main players, the the, the inner guard, you know, the Jeff- Jefferson and and Franklin and and Adams and those people. And and I really liked how Hamilton told the story of like the sort of second ring, the people mm. who are slightly outside and wanted to be in, further mm. inside. That was very well done.
0: Very hipster of you. I don't watch that. <laughs> I'm really into this this 40-year-old play called 7076. Nobody's ever heard of it. It's way better.
1: <laughs> oh wow, so much cred. <laughs>
0: oh
1: yeah. The key the key to analyzing any good work of art is to have another um, more obscure work of art you compare it to. Yeah. So it's just lock people out of the lock people out of the conversation just as quickly as you can. Um, yeah, so well, I an how...
0: the opera. There's this drunk Italian guy at my local pub who sings.
1: Like... <laughs> 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 oh, you, you don't know a local drunk Italian guy? <laughs> yeah, you're missing out. You're missing out. Who was it who was telling me, He's he traveling South America? And they do, like, he was at a bar, and, and I think it was Jared. He was saying they were, like, they were doing, like, some call and response thing. And, like, every single person at the bar, like, some small village, was like, sounded like an opera singer. Like, they all just had this... And, and I mean, I have no idea what it sounds like an opera singer means, but, you know, it was good enough that he was flawed and he's a pretty um, difficult guy to impress. So I think like uh, a culture of, of regular singing can produce wonderful things.
0: Yeah, it's mm. a it's so uniting singing. Mm. I was talking to my friends who are. Um, I have these this group of friends who are Orthodox Christians. I'm really into Jonathan Pajot. I'm not Christian at all. I've never been Christian, but I'm interested as like a as kind of a study of like I like to I like to learn about the religion. And they're nice people. And so um, we were talking about. Um, one of them was talking about how he used to be part of the Christian church, and it was a it was kind of like a rock concert church. And he he found looking back, he found the the songs very kind of shallow or something and then i said Mm -hmm. well is the orthodox church for you is that also shallow the singing and he said no everyone's doing it together it's like it's the most communal thing and then Mm. we're singing everyone's kind of facing i think the pew he said like everyone's facing god and so it's instead of facing this this idol almost like these concert, these these guys you're you're all facing god and singing together and it's uh it's remarkable how important that is i think for human beings
1: Mm -hmm yeah yeah that is that is remarkable it's remarkable it's it's um yeah it's it's important to to all be um uh praying in the same direction in some sense
0: hmm.
1: yeah
0: i think that, that that sounds like it has a lot of layers to it
1: yeah well you know i i, I was trying to i was thinking of a few different things and trying to put them all together into one sentence there um i think i think they're like uh they're I, I don't know if we've spoken about this already, but I'm, I'm sort of, this, this idea is, is um, germinating with me that uh, there are sort of two ways to be with someone um, with sincerity, let's say, so far as I can tell. You know, like, um, like so, so obviously it's, it's very easy to be with people without sincerity. Um, this is Martin Buber's uh, Ich est, Ich du distinction. It's very easy to go into the coffee shop and to treat the person making the coffee as a coffee machine, essentially, right? It's very easy to completely um, of, you know, ignore the, the, the human component there and, and, and do the transaction and go. Um, so, okay, so that's, 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 that's um, being with someone without sincerity, maybe, without presence. But with, or it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's much simpler than that. You can be speaking with someone and then just, like, not make eye contact. Right, you can just like the simple avoidance of glancing away, or like the prolonged avoidance of staring away. But, um, so the, the ways of being with someone, as far as I can tell, with sincerity are looking at each other, so that's that's dialogue, or looking in the same direction or looking yes. at the same thing. Um, and I think that's hunting. I think, you know, um, the, the, the great dog whisperer, Bear Hasofa, told me that, um, the when dogs hunt the um the lead dog will be watching the environment and all the other dogs will be following him going the same direction and and sort of watching him and if he crouches they'll all crouch right he's spotted something they haven't yet but they get that he has and so they're all down as well um and and i think that that's um it's something that we, we don't have a good conscious grasp on often the idea that like you can do stuff together and that's a way of um building um social rapport that is isn't as intense and um and, and sometimes terrifying as, as dialogue it has other benefits um so i think i think doing things in the same direction is important that's i mean that's why that's why you go to, that's why watching tv with someone is nice but it's also why team sports are nice um and uh, so, so you know there's that that component and then there's also like you know prayer as, as a part as a part of a life well lived is important in itself but then the idea that you're combining the two you know prayer uh we you know, you've got to have something that you that you're aiming at that's worth that you're asking for that's worth asking for
0: mm.
1: uh, but then you also have to have a sense that the other people around you're also aiming at that and asking for that because that's what that's what um gives you a sense of community with purpose i think or at least ought to At least is you know puts you on the first steps towards
0: that i've been i've been thinking about a, a very similar uh, the same concept actually and i was talking to elliot my, my partner about this and it's i think i think something like the act of doing something with someone is is kind of a masculine way of bonding not to say that women can't or men mm. you know but like i think a lot of men especially need especially a crucial point in their in points in their lives need to bond with other men by doing tasks. So Elliot always mm-hmm. says like, especially when you're meeting up with old men who are part of a different generation, they need to meet up and do something. Like they need to go and fix something together. Or like, if it's a discussion, they need to be like, Hey, we're going to discuss this point. Let's get coffee and discuss this thing. And yeah. Whereas women kind of were like, Hey, let's go and hang out. Like let's just go and talk to each other and make eye contact. Like you said. And and get coffee and one of the problems with that is that therapy i think is a very feminine quote-unquote feminine way of 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 understanding one's feelings like therapy is just sitting there and talking with someone and it might not necessarily suit that masculine style of like doing things together and then maybe talking about things in that within that process
1: Mm -hmm. yeah um that's that's a really really good point um i I remember that um the comedian bill burr has this piece where he says like i've got all figured out i'm gonna i'm gonna slip this all in while i'm while i'm throwing a ball at my kid you know like he has this whole bit where he's like miming throwing a football and catching a football and he's giving his kid like the big talk and that's exactly it right you've got to like slip that in while you're focused on something else yeah so you don't have that same um i guess moral confrontation maybe yeah as a way of putting it yeah but, um, but the other, you know, this, this is the, the sort of, uh, the battle of the sexes point, which is that, um, the, uh, the, the, you know, if, if, if a man and a woman go together and do something, then, you know, the, the woman can come out, out of that mean like, you never spend any time with me. And he said, what do you mean? We just went and did this together, which yeah. is how he spends time with the guys, but that's not, you know, that doesn't cut it for her. Yeah. She also needs the, the face-to-face dialogue
0: Mm. another point that i I heard i i just said men and women but maybe it's um this applies to children though too it was someone said don't just ask your kid how their day was instead i mean you can do that too but they're probably going to say like oh it was fine or whatever but then go and like cook with them and then talk to them about what's going on and they'll probably open up to you way more when they have Mm -hmm. a when they have a task at hand Mm -hmm. Mm, which makes a lot of sense to me
1: well a a big part of it is just um uh implicit permission of the implicit permission of silence Mm. that's a huge Mm. thing
0: Mm.
1: yeah this is i mean you know you you mentioned elliot this is something he does very very well in dialogue it's an extraordinarily rare thing um in dialogue for, for people to be able to just sit comfortably face to face uh but it's remarkably easy to be doing something right in that in the hunting mechanism that we're talking about if you're both going somewhere doing an activity together and conversation flares up and then dies down there's no it doesn't it doesn't tend to kick off that anxiety of oh why are we not talking right now it doesn't instantly become uncomfortable so you can sort of say a bit and you know maybe just leave something hanging and let the other person chew it over for a while and then respond or not that's that that possibility exists um because you have a sort of scaffold and you're working with um whereas that doesn't exist in the same way in in dialogue does that make
0: sense ellie does that very well um, yeah yeah he tends to he can have this conversation with someone and then listen to them which is extraordinary like i oftentimes i talk in silences. I'll fill them. I'll, I have just, I, I I have this need to tell some of my opinions. And so I'll, I'll give them the advice or whatever, which is, I think kind of a normal thing to do in a conversation. It's, and then Elliot, he'll often pause and give people more time. And then he'll leave a space. He'll leave a space in the conversation. And oftentimes with enough space, somebody will speak again and say a little bit more and, yeah it's yeah it's such a it's such a rare listening quality like you said it's fascinating i don't know how good it is in a podcast though
1: (laughs) yeah they have this phrase in radio called dead air
0: yeah
1: and that's that's um what that's this exact phenomenon commodified yeah so yeah definitely incentive to keep it swinging
0: there's something else about talking to people um, that you mentioned before. You mentioned like when you talk to a, a, a barista at a cafe, you might not necessarily, you might just treat them like a coffee machine. And mm. I have this game that I like to play where I uh, I try to see how how long it takes to kind of make them become a person again. Because they also think of themselves as a coffee machine. I think mm-hmm. that's like um, humans have this, wonderful ability to become part of the group and when i say become part of the group it's almost like we are adopting the personality of the group like you go to a bank teller and the bank teller when you ask for a loan doesn't tell you how drunk he got last night and like show you lewd pictures or whatever he's not doing any of that he's he's or if he does it's it's wildly out of place
1: mm-hmm. um, unless unless it's it's um a bank to very very wealthy people yeah <laughs> and then the rules change again
0: yeah and then the rules change you know the guy you went to you went to the same fraternity with him or you just know yeah it's true the rules do change but um the example that jonathan pajot uses is mall santas like if the mall santa tells tells your kid about his divorce with his wife and how bad it went it's a major violation of of trust and he is no longer santa in that sense he actually stops being santa and so mm-hmm. that means Santa is an entity. It's a, it's an actual. It ha- You know what Santa's personality is, um, even if you don't uh, worship him or believe in him or whatever. Um, worship him? Yeah. I mean, we do worship <laughs> in a way. I guess we leave People. him. We leave him cookies and milk as an offering to pray. Literal food
1: offerings. To him. <laughs> <laughs> the oldest and most basic of pagan ritual
0: you sacrifice a cookie at the altar for Santa. Yeah. um yeah and so the bank teller the the, the barista whatever they 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 are that they take on the personality of the cafe as if the cafe is a person that outs and and that person is a limb of the cafe and mm-hmm. um oftentimes i play this game of like how long does it take for this person not to be building at the cafe anymore like what can you say immediately to um kind of jolt them out of their kind of rhythm and it's it's usually just a question that isn't expected i think is, is mm-hmm. generally the way to go um a question what, what, about the tattoo have... maybe a personal question like yeah, uh-huh. yeah. a joke
1: do, do you have it do you have a um a, what a, a killer line that works every time sort of deal do you have a go-to
0: I don't i, I generally just comment on uh, I've been breaking down social rules lately and figuring out how they work and mm. one really useful social rule is to comment on a mutual thing that we both see and so if I if I see someone in the street walking down and I, I saw someone in the street the other day and he, he was carrying a a reusable coffee mug that i was interested in buying and so i stopped and asked him about it and it's kind of something that just shows up in the environment and um but it's not weird to come and talk to someone because it's like oh i was thinking about buying that what do you think right about, you know?
1: this is the this is the um the old men fixing something together again mm-hmm.
0: mm.
1: Mm. so now you're both focused on the coffee mug and he's not he's not in the suddenly you know under the the the, the, the glaring light of the kgb interrogation mm. and the
0: secret is that most people want to talk to other people in public we're actually i think we're wired to want that community vibe and and to to just meet people and have a chat but most of us don't we don't have a a a way to do so i think Mm -hmm. what about you do you have a a way Go on.
1: yeah well that i mean uh, this is what i was going to say i think um there are a few there are a few like um Turns of phrase that people have used over the years that i didn't really get and i was like whatever you're saying is working and i don't really understand why but you know i'm going to take it on faith and just go with it um and and someone once um i'm not even sure who but he said like he he would um he would ask people in in you know baristas and, and bartenders and so on, but his his go-to phrase was um long like long shift today or how long is your shift mm. yeah and that that instantly got every time this killer and i mean I've, I've been using it for years just how long how long is your shift it's the perfect first question and i think it it like just hearing you talk through your um analysis of the cafe as the as a person and the barista as a limb um it, it really um it really gives me a sort of new insight into this phrase because uh you know what? What's, what's baked into the question is this idea that the the barista is clearly a human, with with all the depths and 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 wild dreams and what have you of a human, who is being paid to be here for a certain amount of time. And how long is that? And and then the the response is is inevitably about the emotional state of the barista rather than the financial state of the cafe, right? It's mm-hmm. always like, oh yeah um oh man lot big one today and resolve or like oh it's been ages and exhaustion or it's um no not a long one today which is you know optimism and and, and it's it's a the end you know it's it's straight away about the person behind the role so mm. that seems to work
0: instead of living we mentioned two-dimensional and three-dimensional kind of but I, i'd like to talk about this more perhaps later but um instead of living in this two-dimensional world of of kind of being in the cafe, being of the cafe. So if I were to go up to them and be like, hey, you use the wrong type of milk and I don't like, it," you know, that's, they're very much in the cafe at that point, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And then asking long shift kind of puts them above and like, oh, I'm a human working with this entire life and I'm currently working in this job and how is my emotional state? Like, let's check in and yeah, it's like a an overview more or or more or less i guess
1: yeah it's a girdle jump you've got you yeah um i don't know if that's a technical term my um my friend michael was was reading Gödel Escherbach and he came and introduced this to me and a whole lot of things clicked together but um you know kurt girdle uh i i'm most familiar with it from the mathematical side but i guess technically the formal logic side um kurt girdle was a mathematician who um, famously proved that a system can either be complete or coherent, but not both. So coherent means it makes internal sense, there are no contradictions, and complete means it is capable of describing everything within its purview, including itself. So what that what that shakes out to is um, any in any mathematical or mathematical or logical system, you're going to have um, a question, at least one question somewhere um, about something, probably about something very fundamental that you can't actually answer from within that system. And you need a meta, meta um, system uh, to answer that, that, that question. Uh, but then of course, the meta system has this exact same property that it can't describe everything on its level either. You go one level up on that. Um,
0: Can you give an example?
1: Yeah, I should be able to give you a bunch. Give me a moment here. Uh, so, so the the um the book by by Douglas Hofstadter, Gödel Bach is based around this idea that that same um, that mathematical idea is also represented in, for example, the um, the art of uh, M C Escher. So M C Escher does the staircase that seem to be ascending forever, uh, but he also does like these um these works where there's like a um, the 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 painting appears to be coming out of the painting. I don't know if I'm explaining this well. And there's like this um there's like this white circle in the middle of the painting that that is sort of like that the um I think that the person inside the painting is maybe tearing out or pulling through. And so th- the, there's that little gap in the middle of the painting is sort of the way you look at the painting, it looks like that's not part of the painting. That's a hole in the painting. Um, and that that hole in the painting is what makes it possible f- for it to feel like you're, like the painting is self-aware, like the painting knows that it's in two dimensions and that you're um, looking at it from a somewhere else. That That's not very clear. But um, yeah, if, if that wasn't clear, the bit about Bach and how fugues uh, represent a different level of conversation within music is going to be even worse. But here we go. Um, so you have like you know you you have you have um, music is like um, tension resolution tension resolution or Mm -hmm. tension tension interesting tension resolution right and so like that pattern keeps going and I think from what I gather um, uh, great musicians like Bach they'll also have um, the entire uh, first bit of of the symphony or or whatever will is really not my wheelhouse, but the entire first um, first song, let's say, um, or first movement will will create a, create a tension that you can hear if you really listen to all the music, like it's all creating tension. And so even though it has tension resolution, tension re- resolution within it, it, it also has this this grand tension
0: mm-hmm.
1: just above it. And then the next bit will play with that tension in addition to all its, yeah. you know, little conventional tension. And then ideally over the course of the entire piece of, you know, an hour or two, that that the grand tension is also brought to a resolution um and so like the the, the stuff like there's a there's one level of analysis where it's just doing this and then there's another level of analysis where it's doing that um yeah so hmm. Richard Feynman said that you only really it was Feynman it might have been born I think it was Feynman he said you only really understand quantum physics if you can explain it to your grandmother um, I don't think I understand quantum physics here no no I'm not no. I'm not doing it. I, I, I read don't think... a book
0: on quantum physics and I think I understand less now somehow
1: oh that's good that's yeah. progress
0: I'm on the right I'm on the right track
1: <laughs> yeah yeah Niels Bohr would be very proud of you good good yeah
0: hmm. so can you uh okay so how does this apply to the cafe or I think this also applies to religion this this idea
1: Sure. Um, so in the cafe, when you walk in, you're playing in the, the the game. You're playing is is um is is called buying coffee. And here's how it goes: You go into the, into the cafe. You say, "Hey," I, I mean, if you're polite, you'll say something like, "Hey, how are you?" you say, oh, good, thanks. How are you? And 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 you'll say, "Yeah, great." I'd like a. Um, uh, you might say, "Thank God," and maybe you can still slip that in without without shattering anything, but. He um, said, I'd like a, this. And he said, okay, well, that'll be this much money. And he said, okay, I'd like a cappuccino with one sugar. And he says, all right, that'll be $4. I said, oh, sorry, I meant large. Oh yeah, large ca- cappuccino, $4.50. One sugar, one sugar, yeah. Okay, here's the money. Get then a takeaway cup. Yep, great. Okay, just right over there, it will come out. I walk over and I wait. And after a couple of minutes, the, the coffee appears. And I say, thank you. And I pick it up and I walk out. Every single bit of that interaction, except maybe the thank God, has been planned out by whoever's running the local chapter of buy a coffee mm-hmm. like the guy who owns the cafe or the guy the manager on detail or work or whatever has has a sort of schematic where people come in they maybe if they're nice and they're having a good day they'll exchange some pleasantries You polite 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 Buy the thing you know move on and so then then there'll be everything there is is, is accounted for and there'll be there'll be um there are possibilities that break that. So if 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 um, you know, like you were saying, if you come in and you're like, oh, that's a really interesting tattoo, you know, tell me about it. Uh, if the person is like that starts to press against the edge of the game because, you know, well, I'm not prepared for this. I mean, I've been told be polite, but what does that mean here? So maybe um, oh yeah, I've uh, you know, I got that when I was in Thailand. And and if if the person is committed to in game uh like the barista might become really uncomfortable if you push that might might say like yeah thanks we've, we've got you know we've got someone else i gotta serve just to give me you know whatever like some sort of social dodge but if not you couldn't you can sort of drag the person out of that game and now you're playing the game of genuine social conversation um and so part of the part of like what we're doing when we say can we you know Get out of the get, uh, like get out of the game of um, of buying a coffee is can we talk to the person as a person right because the game of coffee requires that the person is a barista the role is is what's going on is is that part of the dance um, and and then you know trying getting them getting interacting with them as a person in some sense requires you know either breaking or or subverting in some way the, the game of buying a coffee.
0: So it's a complete game in itself. I, I'm still trying to understand this. So it's a complete game in itself in, in terms of like the, I, the whole process of buying a coffee is mapped out. Oh, go on.
1: I, yeah, it's just like when you said it's a complete game in itself, I was I was suddenly thinking of it in terms of like in in in, 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 go- in Gödel's theorem, the word complete has a specific mathematical meaning. Okay. I don't think that's what you're talking about. Okay. Here.
0: No, it's, it's not. It's definitely okay. not. I, I'm, <laughs> a, I'm a solid uh, high school year 10 level math is my level of math. So no. Um, right.
1: But there's a game. It has a beginning, middle end. It functions. Most of the time, it just goes. Hmm.
0: But it Most... can't ex- you said it can't explain itself? It can't...
1: Yeah, well, look, if you start talking about the game, like, if you if you go in and you start having this conversation mm-hmm. with the barista, Which you are breaking the game. <laughs> it would be a great idea. But you are instantly... Um, you are no longer playing buying a coffee. Yeah. You are now playing buying coffee. You're still playing buying coffee as well, but you're also playing discussed buying coffee, Mm. which is the level above buying coffee, Mm. and which, which may be well on your way into, like, speaking with Barista as a human. Maybe you'll pop into that.
0: So this is why, um, this is why, part of the reason why I I find you so fascinating is because in terms of um, my, my interest in Judaism, I think you play this game very well, where you can see the two-dimensional buying the coffee version of judaism which is you follow the rules and you you end up with a good life almost all the Mm -hmm. time most of the time you follow the rules it's a good way to live and then there's also the talking about the rules and why we do the rules which is which is i think a i i think this sort of line of thinking needs to be introduced in order to appeal to and maybe I'm overstepping myself, but no. for what I believe, appeal to the young atheists. Like it's, a lot of people yeah. have, they're they're seeing religion and they're saying, well, clearly these things didn't actually happen. Like these miracles couldn't have happened. It's not real, and so I'm going to cast the entire thing away. Mm-hmm. It's, it's some subset of people say that, and then there's another way of saying, well, wait a second, you're you're playing the buying the coffee game, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you've just figured out that when you ask the when the barista asks you how are you they don't actually mean how are you okay Mm -hmm. so like Mm -hmm. let's let's take a step back uh and then but there's actually a reason why we play the buy the coffee game and it's because you know many you know many reasons like there's a reason why we play the religion game and it's um and you don't necessarily need to believe in the literal experience of miracles for that to be true all that you can and right yeah
1: yeah Uh, this analogy i think with beautifully on a bunch of levels um for one thing Right when you first figure out that there's that the, that there is a that there's a um, an insincerity in the um, in the in the barista's question, oh how are you, you know. So so first of all, it can be it, it can be shocking if you thought you were having a real conversation with the barista and now you find out you weren't, that could be that could feel damaging or even like a betrayal. Um, and the second thing is, you figure, well, if this is if this is false, then the whole the whole the whole the whole game is false. And, and, and then a reasonable third thing is, well, I'm not playing this because this game is false. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what happens is you just never have coffee, mm-hmm. right? And then it's a short step from that to like decrying the, the falseness of coffee altogether. And I, in some sense, like the, the long road back begins with saying, hang on, but like caffeine still exists. Like why is coffee being delivered in this method? I don't know. Maybe the method has, you know, maybe the method has a lot of pro- has properties that I don't understand. Maybe I don't, I, I don't know how they developed. Some of them might be good mechanisms. Some of them might be bad mechanisms. But fundamentally, coffee is happening. People are being caffeinated. And so you can start backwards and say, well, you know, could people be caffeinated differently? What would that look like? How, how could we change the coffee delivery me- mechanism? Would that ruin the whole coffee enterprise? And so a whole lot of questions arise from that. So that's
0: that's yeah fascinating you had i think I'm not quite as familiar with your background um as I would like to be, but could I think you did kind of go through a um a period of exploration with your religion is that is that right
1: oh yeah <laughs> just gin tiptoe over there a little <laughs> period just just yeah, a brief brief couple of weeks I did the um I did the, uh, you know, the, the piano cruise, you know, two weeks in and out, boom, boom, done. I, uh, I am being vaguely flippant. Um, yeah, so, I mean, for me, for me, like it, it, it actually started very much with the, um, with the false coffee. Uh, I was, I think I was, um, thirteen. I started becoming interested in theology, um, and my Uh, so at that point the um the uh what was the case um so thing like we didn't have a printer at home that was still pretty state state of the art um and uh my my uh, saintly father he did he had a he had a printer at his his workplace and um he had a uh uh, he'd get these emails every week from like yeshivas in, in israel or america that would send out, uh, you know, discussions about the the weekly Torah portion, what have you, um, and he'd print them off and bring them home, and at that point, the point when I became interested in theology, I said, well, how about, um, you know, I'm interested in, in, in this, can you start bringing home more, um, sheets that talk about, you know, the nature of God, the existence of God, proofs for the existence of God, and so on, and he was like, all right, and so he did, and, and so he started bringing home these sorts of sheets, and one of them was, um, uh, mentioned something called St. Anselm's ontological argument and I didn't know what that was and I asked my dad if I could go, um, go look it up at the library and he said well ask the Rav and I asked the Rav and the Rav said yeah go for it and so I went to the um, library and I just started wandering around the philosophy section. Um, I think the first in the adult library and I, I found um, Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian and read a bit of that and I was like well that's pretty pretty intense stuff and then I wandered over they had a philosophy section in the kids library which um kind of remarkable now that you think about it and um and and I read something uh, a book called the philosophy files by Stephen Law which is like a um a a popular retelling with cartoons of of the state of philosophy essentially like the the big the big questions of philosophy and um the big names through the ages who've had opinions on those big big um on those the questions what their opinions have been and sort of where modern philosophers tend to tend to fall on like how you know what the answer or you know how close we are to an answer on those questions um and anyway like I think the, the first one was um the first question he dealt with was uh, is it is it uh, morally wrong to eat animals and the second question he dealt with was is there a god and um he made it very clear that the state of the state of play of philosophy as he understood it in the modern world is that there there is not that the popular conception of God is built on a series of of um false uh false suppositions and that the whole thing is uh I don't know if not a sham that at least you know built on a on a a wrong um on a on a a false foundation let's say um and that really uh, flipped me overnight. I mean, I, I came from a very religious uh, family, very religious community. Um, and I became like the town atheist. I, I, I don't remember, you know, the, the order of operation, you know, to the point of days, but certainly within months, maybe weeks. and It, might, it may have been days. I was like not gone. And I, I abandoned the religion wholesale. I was still going to a religious school. Um, and so people would um, argue with me at the religious school and I would love it because i've always um loved a good argument and i guess i've been good at it that's been my uh that's been my um sport of choice um and
0: oh yes the traditional jewish sport exactly
1: (laughs) very traditional yeah 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 um i I think i think yankee Klein pointed out to me that at um that at a certain point in the 70s we're watching like a, a documentary on the Polgar sisters and was a point in the 70s where the three big players in international chess were russia america and hungary and the the great chess champion of each of those countries was jewish i thought that was very funny like they're just sending their jews out to to compete like a cerebral representation of the cold war no one really knows What's what's going on with chess um anyway the point is that um i did yeah i became the town atheist i would argue vigorously and freely with anyone who um who uh, wanted an argument, and often with people who didn't, and I was um, quite uh, brash and annoying about it, um, and that went on for like a good six, seven years, and then I sort of mellowed out and became a bit more liberal at live. Let live. Um, and in that time, I was seventeen. I started um, doing uh, kung fu, and most kung fu is um, is, is buddhist in origin or at least buddhist in practice so the, the shaolin monks famously are like a warrior monk um you know that that that's what where most kung fu comes from from the shaolin temples the specific types of kung fu that i did didn't come from the, those temples which are all over china they came from a specific set of Taoist monasteries based in and around the wu-tang mountains um and and a big part of those the, the sort of um I don't know the identity or the history of the, the culture around these martial arts is that they are Taoists, not Buddhists. And I was like, well, what, what is this? And so I um I sort of started reading Daoist stuff to, to get better get a better handle of Kung Fu. And I found it really useful and interesting and insightful. And I don't think I disagree like I, I disagreed with um, you know, some of the premises of the metaphysics, but it seemed to be quite wise, a source of a lot of wisdom. I think that was the first um the first time where I really started to, um, I guess, respect the wisdom of religion, uh, separate to rejecting the basic premises or the basic explicit premises of religion. Um, and then it went from um, Buddhism, sorry, from Taoism, I eventually came to um, uh, to a similar appreciation of, of Buddhism, uh, to a lesser degree, Hinduism, but still very much there. and. Um, and and then eventually Islam and that that sort of final boss of really the final boss (laughs) of of, uh of ecumenism yeah yeah it really was I mean I I remember like getting to this point I was like okay I get how Lao Tzu and the Buddha are similar guys and also really familiar from like the stories of like sages and righteous men from my own tradition and I and I get how uh you know I get I get how uh Jesus is like acting out the same archetype again obviously um, but I don't, I don't, um, I don't know about this, this Islam. Thing. I don't know about the, the man they call the Rasul, the, the, the Nabi Muhammad, I'm not so sure. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. And then I, um, I made a Muslim friend and, and we had a lot of discussions about it. And, and uh, he, he finagled me into reading the Quran a bit and, and that was it. It was gone.
0: Have you read the Hadith?
1: I haven't read many hadiths, but my friend Omar has um, has has told me some hadiths, mm-hmm. which I I um you know back to the hipster purism. It's like no, nah, I didn't I didn't I didn't read hadiths. I had Muslims recite them for me in coffee shops uh, as <laughs> intended,
0: as intended. Yes, yes. Come on, over dark Turkish coffee. Yes,
1: mm. I, I'm not that legit. The, the, I still get my uh, cappuccino one sugar from the earlier conversation, but. But, I, it's, I, not but, I, but it isn't
0: it's not it's not quite there it's not a shisha but it's, it's one, one step below
1: hmm. exactly um yeah i guess that's a bit of an overview
0: and how did you All round right. back out to Buddhist, uh to, to judaism how did you get back
1: well um look here, here's something that i i i uh that i i, I happen to believe that, that i think is a bit controversial um as far as i can tell uh, Islam is the most pro-Jewish religion outside of Judaism, obviously. Okay. Yeah.
0: I don't... Ha- how?
1: Well, I mean, um, uh, formally. So, the, um, the Quran, the Quran uh, is, is arranged in order of chapter by size, I think, with the exception of the first chapter. So the first chapter is called Al-Fatiha um the opening uh, it's cognate i think with the hebrew pateh meaning to open and it's you know it's it's just a it's a recitation of the praises of, of god and and a um and you know a prayer or two in there okay so it's, it's it's praise and prayer and good and then the second chapter starts um again with like a short a short prayer and then um then this line this is the book about which there is no doubt a um a guide for those who are righteous and upright something like that and i'm not getting the second part precisely right i don't think but that, that 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 notion this is the book about which there is no doubt um is sort of central to islam this idea that the quran itself is word perfect every line in it is direct revelation from god to the prophet um and and the hadith and the sunnah uh, if you're sunni are um just you know good stories about the prophet that you should probably take seriously you jack check up the brightness here, yeah, great, you should probably take seriously, but some of them are probably fake, but, you know, it's, it's, if you read enough of them, eventually you'll you'll get the sense of good, good ways to be, I mean, then there's whole schools about, like, which of the hadiths are good hadiths versus bad hadiths, and whatever, but, but fundamentally, it's, you know, the Quran is, is the one, is the book that you have to go for, if you're, if you're Muslim, um, and I think that, like, I, I haven't read the whole thing, so I may be, um, you know, I'm, I may have a myopic view here, but um the so the you know remember the first first chapter is the opening, and then the second chapter is the biggest chapter. It's called um Al-Baqarah, the cow. Um, and it's primarily primarily about the wanderings of Moses and the Jews in the desert following the exodus from Egypt. And um it's uh, yeah, um, it's really, it's really explicit about, um, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I mean, in in its own language, about Jews being the chosen people, mm. like, it, there's a, there's a, there's a verse, I want to see if I get it exactly right, um, for indeed, we have um, chosen you and elevated you above all peoples, and why then do you reject me like that's a line from Allah and I'm like reading this in in the Quran of all places that was a bit of a jolt I I you know <laughs> to quote the meme and I took that personally um and and you know there's this there's um there's another line um in this is in uh, Ali Imran so it's the third chapter it's 20th 21st verse I think um and if they dispute with you, the people of the book um, or those who read not, uh, tell them, I have uh, submitted myself uh, to Allah in Islam and, and if they and if they uh, I, I don't know, and if they follow you or something, or if they agree with you, they are rightly guided, but if not, um, then upon you is only the duty of notification, and Allah is seeing of his servants. Mm. so. I don't know, that, that's pretty explicit to me, too. Um,
0: Why isn't it coming out in practice, then? I mean...
1: ah uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Asking the right questions. Um, the, big, the big answer to that is that there's a doctrine, I think it's actually two doctrines with the same name, confusingly, um, called abrogation, the doctrine of abrogation. I think that refers to two different doctrines in Islam one doctrine is is this um this the idea that later verses um override earlier verses so if if there are two different uh pro, you know prophe- commandments in the quran or whatever and there's a contradiction you go whatever's chronologically later which interestingly isn't the same as um you know the order in the book it's it's the the chapters were given at different times and there's a sort of i think a, a received history on when what those times were and whatever was later chronologically is what you side with
0: Muhammad okay. went to war a lot later on didn't he?
1: A lot later on yeah yeah, yeah. um so you know that's part of it right so like all the, the more peace-loving aspects are seen as earlier verses that are overridden by a bit more of the warfare aspect although I will say um there's a particular chapter deals with the laws of war and that a muslim traditionally reads i think on the night before battle and i've read it and it's pretty chill considering it's about war Hmm. from what i recall anyway the point is the first doctrine of abrogation is that later is later override but the second doctrine of abrogation is um the idea that um later prophets override earlier prophets so the idea is that jews are great jews like the point of jews is jews should be good jews until Jesus shows up and then all Jews should abandon Judaism and be good Christians until Muhammad shows up and then all Jews and Christians should abandon Judaism and Christianity and become Muslims like that's that's the, the dominant religious account I don't think I don't know of any proper um I don't know of any of any real support from for this from the Quran itself and I would point to at least two verses just offhand that quite strongly imply the contrary um but you know it's not my it's not my faith it's not my business to do so um but essentially that that's that sort of gets muslims into the, the same position that a lot of um, evangelical christians get into which is you know th- as much as yeah 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 sure try and be like the nazarene and charity and so that you know as you've fed me so you have fed you know you've you visited the man in jail so you visited me in jail you fed the poor you're like you're feeding me and all yeah good work yeah sure but Unless you happen to explicitly declare your belief in this fundamental principle, that's mutually exclusive with everything else, there's no heaven for you. Like that trap that I think um, evangelical Christian Christianity or some I don't know evangelical that's not fair. That a lot of a lot of Christianity falls into. Um, it, it it's the same for Islam, as far as I can tell. That 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 sort of um, that conclusion follows from a from the premises from um if you're going to if you're going to buy into the doctrine of abrogation, then jews and christians no matter how good a job they do aren't going to heaven and i don't buy that and i don't i don't think that's right and i also don't think that's what the quran thinks
0: Hmm. so so there it's also what i love about judaism is that they're they're never knocking on your door asking if you've heard the good word like it's it's all it's always like and and you can still go to heaven there are the the seven noahai laws so an atheist who is oh maybe not an atheist actually because well we don't know who gets into heaven and who doesn't but a person Mm -hmm. who is essentially a good person although one of the noahai laws is to believe in god i believe Mm -hmm. um as long as they are a good person they will be judged righteously and they don't need to follow all of the jewish rules which makes it a lot easier to to convert to a religion where I don't have to constantly be worried about people's salvation.
1: Yeah, well, um, there's this line in 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 the in the Ching, Ching with something like, if heaven were real, it would be liable to rend. And I, I think I asked my friend Jets about this. He said, well, I think it was him. He said something like, well, you know, if you, you just think it through, right? If heaven's real and only some people get in, and you get in, but your whole family doesn't. As, how fun is heaven going to be for you exactly? No. That doesn't sound like a delightful paradise. No. So that you know, heaven is internally contradictory. That's what that's that's the sort of argument there. But I think, but Judaism has a lot of back doors into heaven, like a lot. I mean, just just um, just think just two offhand. One is um, I was reading today somewhere in the Talmud. It says there are three three there are three things a man does, and when he does them, his sins are wiped out. It's like achieving a position of authority um getting married and something else i forget um and then the other thing is there's this was this one great um there's one great story where one of the sages meets um the prophet elijah come from heaven manifesting. he says um uh and and they're in a market and elijah says so i'll see those two guys over there they're going to heaven like, oh really and he goes over and he's like excuse me gentlemen what, do you, what is it that you two do oh us uh we're we're clowns when people are depressed
0: who make them feel better oh yeah Aww, that's very nice hmm. Isn't that's, it? Um, that's uh there's this idea in if you follow uh again Jonathan Fejo he's he's a he interprets things he interprets scripture and also mythology and fairy tales kind of symbolically and so you might see the clown as something like the lowest rung on the on the tier on the hierarchy like he's the fool kind of thing mm-hmm. and so it's like oh even the fool the lowest kind of person can get to heaven um mm-hmm. mm. and the, the fool is also the only one who can speak truth to the king is, is is kind of the known fact so even the lowest on the tier has power that's also similar in the story of david um he's the youngest of the sons he's like the run of the family the abandoned and he's also a fool. he's an entertainer and musician and then he who? david uh, have you heard of him king david
1: david david king david yeah yeah sure yeah he is he is an entertainer he's is, he's is the youngest yeah, yeah. It, it, it checks out yeah and specifically he's in in sort of dialogue and conflict throughout the book of samuel with saul who is described as a head and shoulders above other men mm. right mm. so so saul is very much the quarterback build mm. so you have that you have that uh you have that discourse again
0: Anyway, I, I want to go back though. I I can talk about King David forever, and I'm I might in a bit, but I want to go back to this to how you got back into Judaism from Islam.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, how to get into Judaism from Islam? Yeah. Well. Okay. So something I was um, getting quite good at at the time was, um, I guess. Yeah. I mean the simple version of it is just like putting myself in other people's shoes, like I guess really active empathy. Where I was like, I try and take a situation, and be like, okay, really try and understand what the other person is going through in this moment. Really just stop, sit down, like look through this person's eyes. What is he seeing? Why? Like, what are the basic premises here? How's this all going coming together? And and like that, um, I was I was sort of uh using that in yeah everywhere but but what was really interesting was um in like my explorations of religion where like a lot of the time like i think when people try and investigate religion they're like huh, oh, what, what do you guys what do you guys believe it's like oh we believe that you know that the the moon is the, the the third goat of um of the charioteer like i oh, how about that and 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 that wouldn't be enough for me. I'd be like, okay, the third goat. Okay, explain again the charioteer, and you know, I just I just try and get what is going on with this moon, like, and then eventually you suddenly sort of let your eyes unfocus or just look at the moon and see that goat, and then you're like, oh, the goat, right? And then that's to me. I mean, you know, there's always the question of how well are you really approximating other people's internal states or whatever. But until you can at least sort of do that, I I, I feel like for me, I wasn't I wasn't even in the in the conversation really. I was having a conversation about the conversation, um, and so that was that was um, hmm. How do I put it? Um, yeah. So that's what I was. That's what I was sort of doing with that throughout, like my religious explorations. And so, um, like people would posit all sorts of weird things. I'd be like, okay, how do I get my head around this? Um. And then I'd really, really make an effort to get my head around that. Uh, and so with with Islam, it's like the, the Quran is, um, from a literary point of view, it's very distinct from our own Torah, Lahabdil, in that like the Torah, the, the five books of Moses is written in the third person. And God is, you know, a main character, maybe the main character. I mean, maybe the main character in more ways than one, you know, but... Um, but there are other characters and they have dialogue, and sometimes God talks, and sometimes other people talk. And you know, sometimes God's motivations are explicit and sometimes they're not. The Quran is is um is is not like that, Lahabdul It's like your um it's the whole thing is in the second person, and it's God speaking directly to the prophet. Right? So it's um like as we have said to you, and then like it's just God quoting previous prophecies oh and remember our warning of blah i think god speaks in the first person like like royal we um but that's that's the whole thing the whole thing is this is this is this dialogue that that the prophet's having with god and god is speaking in the first person so and the second person, i mean yeah first person and second person so he's saying i this you this they this right um and so in order to read the Quran at all you kind of have to posit and god as an interlocutor and so like that that's otherwise it's non-starter like you can't like say i don't believe in god and then read the Quran. Who are you talking to it's like the mall santa again it's like you have to at least sort of get santa as a role before you can go up and sit on his lap or you know just (laughs) ask him how to divorce who are you (laughs) (laughs) but but that's that's it you know like um so i had to sort of posit god again to just to really to even read the book. And so positing God again was like a really intense psychological experience to me. Um, so there was that. And I was like, oh, I get like that that makes a lot more sense to me than it used to than it ever did. And I you know i would um I think I had a lot more to draw on from like, like I mean, you know from the from the experiential sense of like the oneness of all things and, and you know through like, meditation and drugs and what have you like that the, the epiphanious experience and also from um from the um like from the writings of like Joseph Campbell like here of a thousand faces and what have you like this this idea of like um deities being nested into like these these giant complexes of ideas and representing a whole bunch of stuff and all of that and and like the idea that you could you could interact with um, a a a grand idea or a spirit or an ideal as if it were a person and that that produced um really uh interesting and noteworthy and occasionally um useful um psychological phenomena and so all of this was going on in the background and then then it just sort of hit me like a a steam train um so there was that and then there was also the um it sort of rounded out my um my, per- i guess my personal non-rending heaven um like that 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 coming to that understanding that islam was as far as i could tell um like another genuine prophetic faith that was was pointing you know in the same direction as as every other faith that i'd um ex- encountered and explored that was sort of um that was i guess um <clears throat>
0: I want to say maybe a relief
1: yeah like that there isn't there isn't a um there isn't a permanent holy war that that sort of has to exist I think like uh, holy wars between holy peoples are kind of um ephemeral and I think that uh everyone has like every major world culture. I mean, I I don't know all of the minor ones, but as far as I can tell, every major world culture has, so far as I can tell, begun the serious work of personal and societal introspection and repentance and healing. And that's, that's really... Elevating to, to know that and to, to feel part of the, uh, of the, what, of the broad global community of,
0: um, people trying to climb up the mountain
1: and, uh, to know that being very much um tied into and bound by the specific local filial or national covenant that you have um, isn't isn't a contradiction of that. And it's in fact exactly how that broader family effort is is achieved. Yeah. It's not achieved through um, everyone endorsing a wishy-wash universalism and leaving it at that. It's achieved through people being extremely rigorous in their personal local religious practice to the point that it is genuinely purifying and redemptive for the individual and for the the community around the individual. And then for the communities to have good effects on each other Mm. after that. And that, you know, all of that is sort of tied in together.
0: Mm. Wow. I feel a sense of ease when you say that like it's it's a nice way to it's a relieving way to see the to see the world as um different people achieving their own or or climbing the mountain as you say in their own way without mm, without needing to ideally without needing to expand and and show the rest of the world that this is the true religion. In fact, they're all, in a way, the true religions. Maybe. It does sound like you went on your own kind of rumspringa. The Amish send their, I mean, I'm sure you know, but the Amish send their kids away for two years to the modern world, and so they can come back and make a decision on whether or not they want to stay Amish, and it's mm. um, It might be one of the best practices. I think a lot of Jewish people do that on their own, but um it seems like once you leave and you come back, you've made your decision more fully, and you kind of perhaps understand the implications of the decision better.. Mm-hmm. What would you say to any, any atheists out there who are struggling with religion? I don't believe
1: that you have to bind to anything that violates your conscience or your uh, sense of truth in order to seriously and and fully. Uh, engage in a faith practice uh at least well i i can say that with with considerable confidence with judaism and it and i have a strong hunch that um that the case is you know also strong with with other faiths um i i don't I don't know that um, I don't know that the best way in fact, I'm pretty confident that the best way to engage with religious practice if you know if you're interested in engaging with religious practice altogether, right? Some people just aren't and they're born without it, and they don't want it, and thank you very much., yeah, so I guess I'm not really um, you know, trying to sell anything to any of those people, but for people who <laughs> Um, Are um, are not religious, perhaps weren't were religious and and aren't anymore, um, but who would like to be or who see redemptive aspects to the faith, um, and would like those. I I I think I'd, I'd really emphasize that fact that it can be done without um betraying your own uh ideals or a uh, rationalist worldview
0: mm. a rationalist worldview specifically um is interesting if you look at a lot of the rationalists like there's a specific community of people called rationalists and they seem to be almost wholly atheist uh but i i agree with you i think there's it's very possible to be by some definitions, perhaps a religious atheist, although mm. I wouldn't I wouldn't consider myself one. But yeah. What I wonder, though, is. Um, OK, so like uh, some cultures we're talking about Islam, I don't really want to rail against Islam, but there's something where. Um, okay, let's just take the the Bible like the the Torah has some command, not commandments, but some. I don't know if they're mitzvahs or not I, exactly um hmm. mitzvahs are like a, a commandment from god but like i've read things in the bible like um or in the witches if you see them or um i think that shall one... not
1: suffer a witch to live in yes. <laughs> that's right. yeah that's right
0: that was, yeah, yeah and then there's one about um it was a while ago I, i'm pretty sure it's the old testament it was um if a woman gets raped then her her rapist must pay her father like 40 shekels or something and and marry her and they're all i mean are you familiar with that one
1: yeah he cannot divorce her all his days
0: Mm. and so i'm i'm what but judaism doesn't practice these right and so somehow we have we um somehow the jewish people have managed to believe on one instance that these are that moses was transmitting the true word of god
1: and mm-hmm.
0: on the other hand you Ju- Judaism has managed not to suffer to it is managed to suffer which is to live somehow <laughs> well <laughs> and, yeah and then as far as I know no enforcement of of marriage after a man rapes a woman so yeah yeah,
1: yeah well that that goes back even to the um to the like to, to the to the legal development through the Talmud but um you're my my um I think like there's yeah there's 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 a there's a what a, 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 a the rabbinic interpretive um, system seems to be like very healthy for like the faith in general. um there's a verse somewhere that's like, and you shall follow after like the sages in your generation, and like that's taken as a very powerful springboard to like extremely intricate um analysis and uh what would you say extrapolation from of of like the relatively rudimentary legal system that exists in the Torah into this extraordinarily elaborate and detailed legal system that you know exists in the Talmud and is um and in the later codexes and is practiced by Jews today. Um, And one of the striking things about it is that you have a lot of laws that like wow I guess if you're a um if you're a what a group of nomads on your way through a desert trying not to savagely butcher and eat each other this is a pretty good blunt instrument of a law to to have but i don't know if this is really the best thing we can come up with as civilized folk
0: yeah. and sort
1: of taking that and keeping the the explicit commandment and keeping and and just like you know having a, a whole superstructure of, of conditions around it and um and and situational nuances that, that completely change the way it's, it's practiced um and that that uh canonically is um a process of um dr- drawing out the meaning that's already in the verse rather than you know just shoving stuff back in there but the practical upshot of it is um that like you know um in the 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 verse like um, about an eye for an eye a, a tooth for a tooth you know hand for hand all that like it seems to be explicitly referring to like cutting off people's limbs in retribution for cut off limbs, but it's very emphatically like uh, within the Jewish legal tradition, um, seen as oh well, you have a um, a a value to this to these, to these limbs, um, and the value is set by like you know a bunch of different a bunch of different calculations. Then you have then like there's a penalty for 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 um, uh, you know injuring people in these ways and, and the whole thing is financial but it's like got several layers all of which are based around the idea that um uh, that that that's what that passage means that it's it's um it's about paying like a steep fine and like for their medical insurance and the pain and the shame and like the um the gap between earning potential and you know like all these things sort of get get um folded into it but it's not it's not a ritual cutting off of the hand Whereas, as you know, as you say, there does seem to be um, well, I mean, look, not a lot of hand cutting off in the Muslim world, like some, I think, maybe in Saudi Arabia. Like I think Wahhabis will do it. I hope I'm not speaking out of too much ignorance here. Um, and I think there's also some beheadings or stonings there, but I don't know, does it still happen in Pakistan? I don't know. Does it still happen in Indonesia? Does it still happen in Jordan, Egypt? I feel like not like i don't I don't think I've ever seen like a one handed Arab before a one handed Muslim yeah so like I don't think it's still widely practiced um but I don't know again There's other like,
0: things that are widely practiced that are yeah uh, I would say could be updated in some way. Y- yeah. yeah but uh, mm. it's, it's not my it's not my area of expertise anyway um so the the Talmud though is so as as far as I understand, there are the the initial books. There's the Torah and the Tanakh, and then the Talmud is the the ra- all these rabbis throughout time have have argued and created their own sort of sort of a judicial structure or something and their own interpretations of the books through the oral text. So it's through um, I guess there were oral um, interpretations of what happened that kind of went alongside the Bible, and then it was written down at some point. Is that is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Does that continue today? Is there anyone sort of updating it to today's standards?
1: Mm. now you come to the crux of the issue. So in, uh, I think the f- fifth, fifth, sixth century, um, the, the, the Talmud was codified. The, um, the, it was sort of these, um, hundreds of years of, of, um, of uh, the minutes of various rabbinic arguments within academies, between academies, uh, what was codified and and written down. And that sort of became the foundation of of Jewish law. And the idea is that that's sort of what we've got to work with until the Messiah comes and reestablishes the high court in Jerusalem. And we can take another serious look at some of this stuff. Mm. Um, and so, in some sense, we're working with a, um, an extremely sophisticated piece of uh, cultural software that hasn't received any major updates um, to its uh, what to its to its you know, to its functioning in like fifteen hundred years. Mm. And and that's I mean you know on the one hand it's kind of um, uh, you know a bit a bit uh, kind of incredible that. It hasn't you know that what would you say it's it's um it's remarkable that it hasn't uh received an update in so long um and it's also remarkable that it's that it functions as well as it does considering mm. it hasn't received an update in so long but i um i'm very fond of asking people this question i say um if like suppose the sun Hedgen is reestablished tomorrow and they're taking submissions from the public for um for laws to take another look at for laws to be re-examined in practice mm. what would you propose and I love the way this um I love the way this 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 is sort of I love the way the sentence uh this question brings out um really interesting conversation from people in a way that you know going back to the, the, the coffee shop thing it, it draws them out of um their their standard um, apologetic polemic dialectic I don't know if that made sense people people feel like you have they have their their way of life and they got to defend it and that's and that's it and if anyone tries to mm. um you know get involved in a way that doesn't they don't like they have to shut that down real quick and partly that's you know built around ca- canon and dogma and partly that's just like you know the the human um you know instinct for self-preservation or what have you or um the preservation of one's um, worldview, culture, station in life, whatever. But um, when you ask this question, people are very willing um, to to give you responses to that. Rabbis, I found, are very willing to give you responses to that. And really interesting, really thoughtful responses. So there's this understanding that the law is progressing um, and that the law is on pause. And that you know, it's been on pause for a long time, and we're hoping to take it off pause real soon. Um, but in the meantime, pause is where we're at, and what it's by definition not ideal, but it's also a lot better than any alternative you can name. I, I think it's something like that.
0: Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, answers a lot of my questions. What would you? either what would you send to be a suggestion or uh perhaps what's been a good suggestion that you've received
1: oh i'm, I'm happy to answer both um give me give me a couple of minutes though
0: mm-hmm.
1: sure. i'll be right back
0: yeah god willing I don't know what that means, but hello.
1: (laughs) I think it means I arrive or I have arrived. Oh, wonderful. France, France, French.
0: So I asked before what you would send in as a submission to be changed about Judaic law.
1: Mm. Um, Okay, so what I would send in my hunch is uh that we could do with another look at the laws of uh agunot um they're literally i think bound women um there's this there's this phenomenon in, in judaism the way a divorce is enacted is that the the husband will write out write out a document i have a document written out for him and he will hand it um to the woman or you know one of his um messenger will hand it to the woman and um because of that uh in if a man wants to be really nasty he can just like run off and not hand over the document um and then she can't get remarried because she's still legally wed to him Mm. and compounding um the the awfulness is that there's a um uh Uh, that um that while um what polyandry is like strictly biblically forbidden polygyny is like eh, only like a really a later decree so like women definitely can't have multiple husbands in judaism can men have multiple wives like we don't but like that's because of a a decree like a thousand years ago in constantinople rather than something straight out of the Torah from like 25 Mm -hmm. you know 3500 years ago so <laughs> a thousand years in in um in Jewish time is, is pretty short um and so that that rule is is um what subject to being a lot more relaxed and so what 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 could actually happen is that um you know a divorce will happen and the man will just like or a separation will happen the man will refuse to give his wife a um a writ of divorce and just run off somewhere and marry someone else and he can have a whole extra family and she's just stuck there in limbo oh. indefinitely
0: yeah yeah so yep
1: yeah so look there are, there are a bunch of angles on that um traditionally the um the uh the what the, Jew, the 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 practical jewish um response to these sorts of cases is uh to beat him until he gives a until he gives a divorce very practical uh, very practical and and then the um the it, it within the uh, Talmudic discourse the the question arises it's like well you know, it, he has to give it voluntarily. You can't, you know, if you coerce him to give the document, the document isn't valid. So, so, you know, how can you beat him? It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. We don't beat him until he gives the document. We beat him until he wants to give the document.
0: <laughs> Genius. Genius.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so that's really fun. Um, so, so that that's, tradi- that's the traditional um, response to these situations. But at the moment, I think in America, there are people who are in prison for it um, in a Hasidic society that was done. And a lot of people went on trial for it. I think some people went away for it. So, um, so that's starting to rub up against um, you know, the practicalities of modern society in a, in a serious way. Um, and so there's that, that response. Another thing is um, some people are... Um, to social media in a big way to pressure people who you know get deniers into giving their their wife a get this this religious doctrine um this bill of divorce and you know because of social media it's much harder to just run off to a foreign country and you know leave your path behind you because it follows you there um so so that i think has had some success this sort of these mass um social media campaigns uh and then the other interesting avenue is um uh, i had uh, this, this wonderful woman named, uh, I hope I got it right, Talia Fagenbaum on my um, podcast. And she's a lawyer in Victoria. And one of her, um, uh, I guess, angles, one of, her, one of the things she's trying to accomplish is to have um, the refusal to give a get classified as a form of uh, spousal abuse under Australian common law
0: ah good okay yeah. Great. yeah
1: so that's very noble um and i and that might that might see some fruits so there, there are some early successes in that it looks like it's going to take a lot more to get all the way through but that could be something
0: mm. i read this story about something like the only jew left in afghanistan or something and he was there yeah. i think in part because he was refusing to give his wife a get a divorce
1: i heard that i do not know the details of the case but I remember being really disappointed about that because, I, you know, there's this, like, romantic, chaotic notion of, like, oh, the last to do it, I've got to start. Let's make a Broadway about it. Oh, that's what? Oh, okay, never mind. Yeah. So, yeah, i really disappointed.
0: It sheds a lot more light on on what kind of person he was.
1: Yeah. Okay. Me- yeah, well, maybe. I don't did, I know the situation. I don't know yeah. if that's actually the case. But, but I will say, I will say that, um, it, look, speaking from a position of immense ignorance, I don't understand why we couldn't do more in this case so something rabbinic judaism is fantastic at is taking a core law that you know is immutable and saying okay well this is immutable but like how many conditions can we put around it to you know sort of like the river's running this way can we direct it around here so it doesn't flood any villages um you know it's forbidden to dam it but you can sort of divert divert it according to certain principles Mm -hmm. Um, and and I, I feel like, I mean, one avenue, again, this practically, probably there are severe um, problems with doing this, but one avenue would just be like having something like convening a, a big assembly of like rabbinic judges and having like the man who's, um, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the get denied, decreed legally unfit, and then having his documentation retroactively nullified like yeah that's that's a possible that's a possible angle. why doesn't that exist i don't know could that exist maybe i i'm not good enough at the underlying mechanisms.
0: Mm. anyway
1: that's um so that's my one my my uh my go-to response a rabbi I asked gave um he said that um he would be his proposal would be um about uh women in rabbinics
0: mm.
1: yeah he has, he has, I, I mean, like, you know, from, from, um, from what I know, he has at least one very bright, very learned daughter, and the way things currently are, she doesn't get to be a rabbi. No. Yeah.
0: It's, um, that, that is certainly too bad, um, although I think um, from the little interaction, I've, I've had a fair bit of interaction with a small part of the community, so I'm not quite as privy to this as uh, many people are. But it seems as if the, the rabbits, the, the rabbits and the, the wives of the rabbi do have their own very powerful influence and in, especially mm-hmm. towards the women in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that is, it, I guess technically a, a, a rabbi's wife has very little um, responsibilities aside from the normal responsibilities uh, of a woman, but in practice, uh, as does commonly happen, she has an enormous weight on her shoulders.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: It seems like there was a, from the ones that I've interacted with, it, it seems like there's kind of this uh, separate women's society um, that mm-hmm. is very, very prominent in the Jewish community. And I I, I do wonder if, if being learned it would be very helpful in, in gaining influence and, and helping the community from that way.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's, it's it's a um it's really well put like that that notion of, of, a, of a separate women's society i feel like that there, there's sort of a, a shadow government at play um oh, yeah. in the yeah, yeah um, in the and, I, and i think the um the faith is specifically built in such a way to what not only permit that but encourage that really strongly um you can actually see this in the um you know we're we're reading uh, I mean this this is going to date the podcast a bit, but in the um in the weekly Torah portions, we're just we're just coming to the end of the um uh, the end of the Jacob cycle, the beginning of the Joseph cycle, right? So we've just gone through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the forefathers. and something that's that's really jumped out to me this time is um this um, is the the influence of women in the narrative right because in principle it's like the stories are about these these men and their actions and what have you and and there's this sort of um what there's this sort of hmm. there's a sort of universal um enfranchisement of men that's sort of like like uh culturally default let's say like if you just read stuff about old things like oh it's about the men and Mm -hmm. you know like this 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 clip about like history more like his story am i right yeah. so so that's that's really, so that's like normally it's like and this guy went and did this and did that and that whatever um and the 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 terror really subverts this like so the the establishment you know after you have this order if you have adam and nah who are really i'd say they're like dream dream time characters in a lot of ways like they're you know um i know this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine and uh, it really, um, it really sort of, um, relates back to what we were earlier discussing, but there's a, uh, commentary by Rashi, like the great, um, uh, the great, what, biblical and Talmudic commentator in the Jewish tradition, um, i think it's the second so it's on the it's on the first verse in the Torah, and it's his second comment and his second comment is something like um uh, it's, i'm not i don't have the i don't think i have the words exactly right but something like en omer, uh midrash hazeh, uh, hazeh eladasheni there is nothing that this verse is saying except expound me it's like in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth it's like yeah yeah what if you think like it's trying to give you like a um a, an astronomy lesson you're way off there's nothing this verse is saying except expound me there's a, there's a, there's an there's an exposition you're supposed to be drawing out of this story um and that sort of ties in with like the Maimonidean view that like there's very little in the in the Torah that you actually have to take um literally or at face value it may mm-hmm. be that the revelation at Sinai is like the only thing or possibly revelation at sinai plus like the fact that we left egypt
0: mm-hmm.
1: um which i you know that's a separate hobby wars but it is I, I feel that that is sufficiently borne out by um what we know of the 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 um of the great uh hyksos migrations into and then out of egypt separate discussion
0: mm-hmm. anyway
1: point is um that uh that so the whole Adam cycle and the North cycle is like replete with like this 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 deep rich um, sort of um, archetypal descriptions. Um, and I, I actually asked the Rabbi about this. And I'm like, okay, when at what point in the trade, do you think historical characters start like characters stop being metaphorical and start being historical? And he said he thinks Abraham. Um, and and. Like, Avram's the first character that really goes around, does stuff, has, like, sustained interactions with people. And the first thing we know about him is that he's, or like, one of, you know, one of the very first things we know about him is that he leaves, where, like, he travels on from, like, the journey that his father is taking to a new land, and he takes with him his wife, who's barren. Like, that's really plot central, right? So he has a wife, and she's not, she doesn't bear many kids, but when he leaves to go on his great adventure, he takes her with him. Mm -hmm. And that's significant, right? It means that he, he, he doesn't just value her for the offspring she can provide him.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So that's the, that's the, that's the setup. And then when, you know, like he, he, he does his adventures and God's like, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have great offspring, whatever. Um, And then, and then, um, his wife sarah is like listen maybe what you'll do is you'll take my handmaiden as as a second wife or as a concubine and maybe through the merit that i accrue through you know relinquishing my my soul rights to you say that god will bless me also with a child and he and and abraham says the text goes and asks god about this and god's like in um in all things like in all things heed her voice listen to her voice and um, I think Rashi says, like, because she is greater in prophecy than you. So that's really remarkable as well. So you've got this, this figure who's, who's, you know, just like the story is ostensibly about Abraham, but you know, he takes his wife along despite her not bearing kids, which is like, you know, easily like the, the standard patriarchal, like responsibility of women. And, and then he, um, and then, then God like straight tells him to his, to his face, like, and she's bet ba- you should listen to everything she says. Yeah, know and, and, and as rashi says because she's the, she's the better greater prophet okay and then that that um you fast forward a couple of generations and um uh abraham's son isaac is about to give the uh blessing of the firstborn to his older son Asaph. um and yitzchak's wife gonna, I, I might interchangeably use like the hebrew and the anglicized names I hope that doesn't throw anyone off um but but Yitzchak's wife Rivka is um she doesn't think that's a good idea she thinks the blessing should go to the youngest son Yaakov mm. and so after Yitzchak says to Aesop go go you know get go out, something like go out into the fields hunt hunt me some game like make up some nice food the kind that I like and and then then I'll give you the, the blessing because I'm near death and Aesop goes out instantly um Yisroh's wife Rifka shows up. She says to Yaakov, "No, no, listen. Like, listen to my voice. We're not. We're not letting him do that. What we're going to do is we're going to, You are go- I'm going to slaughter a goat or two goats or something, and you're going to take. You're going to prepare something now, some food. We're going to prepare some food, and you're going to take that into your father, who's blind. That's quite relevant. And um, and he's going to bless you. And and like the language she uses when she's hatching this steam is Shema bekoli, like heed my voice." And, you know, he objects a bit, but in the end goes through with it. And that's, and like the the, the narrative ends up following him. Mm. And so what's really interesting is like, there's this movement from, from like the earlier, the slightly earliest um, section of like God saying to to Abraham, um, heed her voice, to Rivka, um, Abraham's daughter-in-law's, using the same language in the first person, heed my voice. And it's the same root word, the shema, meaning hear or heed, and um, coil meaning voice so i I think that's that's really that's really well it's really compelling and i think it's it's you know it's um linguistic parallelism or duplication in the bible is uh is to be taken seriously
0: Mm.
1: and so i think that's part of like what we you know what we're talking about with this parallel society i think that's a big part of what is being explored in these early biblical tales like in what ways are the women who are with these these you know these the patriarchs like pulling the strings to make the events happen that that need to be happening
0: Mm. i i can't agree more i think um we have this underlying narrative that women were oppressed throughout history which is true in many ways but like if you look at history I mean it it does follow these parallels like women were oftentimes sometimes just as powerful as the men but without the outward show of power like Mm -hmm. you look at Alexander's mother who he was super attached to his mom Olympias and she had like all these myths around her and people would say um he's just like his mother that was constantly said about Alexander which isn't I, I just listened to a Dan Carlin episode of it, but like people don't often say, history, "Oh, Yitsi, you're just like your you mother." He's amazing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's yeah. fantastic. Like, no, that's that's not the um, that's not a common expression. No,
0: no, no, and that was said about him because she was, and she was so, and many, many great, uh, many great leaders throughout history, many great conquerors had like very strong relationships with their mothers, and um king henry the sixth was born as a like kind of a lower noble class like he was kind of nobody would have thought that he was gonna rise up to to be the king when he was mm. born he was very much not in the running and then his mother who had him at 13 just spent her entire life social climbing from one person to another like making friends with the right people and eventually her her son became king
1: and wow. um,
0: it, it was incredible it was incredible um I, yeah, there's, there's I love that. Yeah, there's a YouTube documentary on um the the War of Roses, and it's the fourth one, Margaret. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing, and I think that we, I would love I would love to see, and perhaps I should do something about this. Um, but I'm not much of a history buff myself, but uh, <laughs> just more stories of the women because I think we are. It's just like, I think that's one of the reasons why Macbeth is such a such a captivating play for me is because it's it's kind of all centered around Lady Macbeth like she is Mm -hmm. his conscience in so many ways he he kills these people and he climbs up but it's it's specifically because there's this dark feminine in there because the feminine Mm -hmm. influences the man and Mm -hmm. you could say that oftentimes the female is kind of the conscience like look at vegetarians right most vegetarians probably started off as women in society and then the men kind of to whatever the women are doing and, and then and then they're a, and now it's a movement yeah now it's a movement
1: yeah yeah um, yeah 100 100 also within Macbeth you have the um you know the three witches who are the ones who give the quest to begin with
0: yeah and there's this
1: whole extra scene that's like often cut in modern productions where like Hecate like the the leader of the witches like this shows up and does this whole monologue to them hmm yeah, so there's a lot going on there. So Lo um, there's this really interesting bit in the Talmud about Korah. Um, you know, Korah, Korach, Korah. No. He's this he's this dude who has this big like um uh what the the closest thing to a um <laughs> the closest thing to a War of the Roses, I guess, in the Torah itself. Like he's this guy who's also from like the tribe of Levi. Who's like very like off a very similar like um family branch to Moses himself and he shows up and like tries undermining like Moses leadership and and um Aaron's command of the high of the high priesthood and so there's this there's this really um powerful dr- drama and um and eventually like it, it culminate like there's this there's this um there's this back and forth and it culminates in this really incredible scene where um I think I think uh on god's command like aaron brings and maybe his sons bring like fire pans with incense in them and korach and his followers bring fire pans with incense in them and like at this preordained time like this fire comes down from heaven and consumes aaron's like thus indicating like that god is into his offering and like he chooses him and at the same time the earth splits open and korach and his followers descend and oh. that's it yeah so then so then that's so that's like the story in the actual Torah, I don't think, like, mentions women explicitly at all, as, as I recall, however, there's this really interesting um thing that the rabbis pull out, where they're, like, um, talking about, where they say, well, look, if you look at the, um, if you look at the beginning of the dispute, it has, like, it lists Torah by name, and, like a f- like, this, like, I think three other guys explicitly, like, names them, and a bunch of other people, they showed up with this, complaint against Moses and Aaron and then like towards the end of the story it says something like and Korah and these two guys and his complainers showed up like wait a minute what about this guy why did they mention him here but not here um and and like there's this rabbinic homily there's a story that his wife saw what he was up to and was like this isn't a good idea This is not. <laughs> and so and so um like in advance of the of like they're all scheduled to show up and like bring out their fire pans and do the big public defiance thing at a certain time and ahead of that i think she was um she she was feeding him a lot of alcohol i think i think maybe even feeding him like cheese to make him thirsty or salt to make him thirsty at the same time but i could be getting that from a different story so feeding, feeding him a lot of alcohol and he passed out and then what she did is she sat at the entrance of her tent like combing her hair so when Koroth's henchmen came to collect him, they're like, Oh, a woman cutting her hair. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't disturb this. And so they left. And then he slept through the whole thing and he survived. Wow. And, yeah. And then they tell this parallel story where they're like, and you know, and on the other hand, like Koroth's wife, what was her dialogue like? Like she would, he would come home and she would say to him, Why is it that, that Moses and Aaron lord their themselves over you? It's not was it's not like you know like da, 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 and like she's the one who instigated him with this whole thing wow. so it's like yeah strong parallel now that now that you know now i'm saying a lot strong parallel to have to do with like the macbeth thing right
0: because
1: mm. macbeth's willing to leave it mm. lady macbeth's like the one who like nudges him it's like no no you have to take the king on bro this is you can't just let him you're destined for more and so like that that whole Talmudic story is meant to like illustrate how again it's that like that female influence for good or for ill thats is really i guess in the driver's seat these really um big events
0: that has a lot of parallels in my own life actually i think um uh i'll i'll wrap up pretty soon it's getting kind of late but um even like elliot's a coach right and and when i first was with him he was like oh i want to be a coach and and by the way he spends like sometimes five or seven hours a day just talking to people and like helping them through their stuff and essentially mm. he was coaching without the money and mm. he was like i i just want to do this for for money i can help people learn to meditate and all that and i had these preconceived notions before of, of what coaches were and they they seemed slimy to me like the the idea of a coach was slimy and i was like kind of initially i was like uh, ah, don't do that you know what else have be considered like and I had a Lady Macbeth in me kind of thing of of like, oh, go for power, you know, whatever you yeah. consider being a doctor, you know, something yeah. like that. But it's it's like actually probably my place as a as a woman is is to encourage him to follow his his higher self or or his his path set out by God, you might say, or or just his um whatever his passion are and, and also to do the right thing for him to do the right thing. And um and not so much to to strive for absolute for for power or for social social climbing, which I think is a pitfall that we can fall into sometimes.
1: Hmm. Yeah. All
0: right. I think I might and wrap up there. It's it's nearly nine p.m. Oh, it good innings. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. This is great. Yeah.
1: I really really enjoyed it. It's
0: been two hours and forty minutes. I can't believe it. You're a very good talk. It's very easy to talk to you. Thank
1: you. <laughs> likewise all
0: right um will you be releasing a new episode of your podcast soon do you think yeah
1: actually i um i i took a big break over the covid thing because i do mine in person um that's that's a thing i try and yes you know, abide by um but i i've recorded three new episodes and hopefully we're season two yeah yeah season two
0: all right Yitzhi Tuval and that is Building Jerusalem yeah all right wonderful I'll talk to you soon talk to you later God willing God willing thanks